0: Well, as we dig into Psalm 59, in the end, our God's strength, His being our fortress, and His steadfast love will be a refreshment to us. But as we enter into this psalm, we need to remember the context. This is a period in David's life when he is deeply afraid. Notice the title to Psalm 59 as we consider what's going on there. David says, to the chief musician, that's common in the Psalms, it's for worship, it's to be uh, led among the congregation there. We sang it this morning, our, our third hymn today was the setting of Psalm 59. It actually has, the one we sang actually has like 12 stanzas to it, we only sang four of them, uh, but uh, anyway... Uh, so we got to sing this psalm as David intended, uh, not set to the music Do Not Destroy. The last three psalms have been set to that melody. We have no idea uh, how that melody goes. It's, it's lost to us at this point in history. Uh, what was the significance of that melody, Do Not Destroy? Either David was thinking to himself, I'm going to try my best not to destroy Saul, even though I ask God to do that, on the other hand, maybe David was asking God, do not, do not let him destroy me. So, am not sure exactly what David had in mind with that, but that's kind of uh, that do not destroy melody. It's called a miktom, which meant David wanted it to be used kind of in teaching. He could learn a lesson from this psalm. And then we have the occasion when Saul sent men and they watched the house in order to kill him, in order to kill David. This takes place in 1 Samuel chapter 19. And in verses 11 and 12, we read about this real brief excerpt from David's life. Uh, Michael, David's wife, is the daughter of Saul, uh, finds out that these men are going to be there. And so she notifies David, Saul has sent men and they're hiding in the dark and they're coming to kill you. And she persuades David to flee the house that he's in in order to get to safety. And so she actually helps him escape out a window. Interesting, a number of stories in the Bible that involve escaping out a window. Hopefully you've never been in so much trouble you've had to escape out a window. But here, this is what David has to do. And through the night, as these men watch his house, his wife helps him escape out the window. Saul and his men arrive, and uh, they don't kill Michael. That's Saul's daughter, and she persuades them uh, to, to run off somewhere else that David has has run and so forth. So that's sort of the setting of this psalm. David is being hunted in the night seasons, a time of terror, a time of difficulty. Now, we read that at first, and we think, well, that's not, that's not all that easy for us to relate to. There probably haven't been too many occasions when someone has been waiting outside, looking in your house, you know, seeking for the right opportunity to take your life. Hopefully, you've never had that experience. That's fairly rare in the United States, and that's a good thing. So then how do we relate to David, who's facing these men trying to take his life? Well, as David goes through the psalm, it really becomes a, a prayer of deliverance from evil, a deliverance from those who would seek to take him down. And certainly, you and I can relate to Evil being present in our world. We've talked about this the last few Psalms, but just to give a reminder of how we relate to what David is going through here. See, evil tracks its history all the way back to Satan in the Garden of Eden the very singular one who was opposed to God, who wanted to tear down what God had made. God had made perfect creation, and so he comes to Eve, and, and likely also to Adam, and begins to tempt them to take bite of this fruit, to, you know, just kind of ignore the commands of God. Well, is it really going to happen the way God said? And he begins to tear down, he begins to commit evil there in the garden, and then Adam and Eve choose to side with evil when they themselves bite from the apple and we have, or not an apple, the fruit of the garden, excuse me. Uh, We have no idea what kind of fruit it was. They bite from the fruits of the garden and the fall comes. And so from that point forward, humanity, mankind has faced a world that is affected by evil, death is a reminder of sin and evil. Illness is an evidence of evil. All these things around us, terror and violence, these are all uh, proofs and fruits and evidence of the evil that began there at the beginning in the garden. Our world is fallen and broken. And so while we may not have people waiting outside our homes to take our lives, thankfully, we do face evil. And it can be difficult at times to know how to process the evils that take place in our lives. There are many things that touch us as human beings living in a fallen world. Many of us face health issues and disease. And certainly, you've experienced the the loss of a loved one through death. we, We experience, we feel the presence of evil around us. And so this psalm helps us to turn to God who is our refuge. And and what that means as we study this psalm is that God is our strength, He is our fortress, and He is our steadfast love. So that even though there may be evil things that happen in our lives, those things will not ultimately harm us because God is our defense. God is our strength. God is our refuge. Even if we die... God holds fast his children. You see these are this is the way the promises of God are greater than the acts of evil. Evil cannot touch us unless God's loving hands have determined that this trial, this bit of suffering, this little time of difficulty will be eternally good for you, to grow you and to make you more like Jesus and to increase your eternal rewards. He only allows those things through that are necessary and good and right because He is our loving fortress, right? So we trust him. Even in an evil world, we trust him. He's our refuge, he's our strength. And so, certainly, as we think of evil in those terms and its presence, prevailing presence, even in our world, we can understand in those terms the terror that David faces. We face all sorts of terrors that remind us that our world is fallen. The things that either as you're trying to fall asleep, you know, you you hear a noise and you wonder what that was and so on and so forth. Or the things that are racing through your mind. The anxieties, the worries, the fears, the things that won't allow you to slow down and actually go to sleep. The things that make your heart race and your stomach turn. We all have those things. Battle those fears And so Psalm 59 is so helpful to us that we, when we are stalked by evil, can look to the God of steadfast love to be our strength and our fortress. When we are stalked by evil like David, when we face the fears of evil on every side, we can turn to God, the God of steadfast love, to be our strength and our fortress. And so the rest of our sermon, we're going to think through how we do that as we see how David did that in the midst of his own period of time when he was stalked by evil. Now, as we enter the psalm, let's get a brief view of the structure. There are three main sections in this psalm. David makes a request And then following that request, David uh, expresses his confidence in God. And this is repeated twice through the psalm. Now notice with me, you'll see the first section, the first request in verses 1 through 5, and it ends with the word selah, which means there should be this pause. And so David there asks for deliverance. Then in verses 6-6, Through uh, uh, 8, David makes a request uh, regarding the evildoers. Uh, He he begins to talk about what they do. He says in verse 6, they growl like a dog. And there's where we get one of our rich metaphors of this psalm, the, the growling dog. But then the end of that section, if you look down at verse 10, has a little bit of a refrain there. He says, my God of mercy shall come to me. And shall let me see my desire on my enemies. You'll notice a similar thing in verse 17. To you, O my strength, I will sing praises, for God is my defense, my God of mercy. That phrase is sort of a refrain. It's there in verses 9 and 10. You see it again in verse 17. You'll also notice the little refrain about the dogs in verses 6 and 7, as well as in verses 14 and 15. So there's some repetition here. David comes back to the dogs twice, and he comes back to God as his strength, fortress, and steadfast love twice. So These are sort of his repetition. In fact, the word fortress comes up four times in this psalm, and it means high tower. It means that God is his refuge, his high tower, his fortress, one of the main themes. The word "hesed," steadfast love, also comes up many times in this psalm. So when we're stalked by evil, we look to the God of steadfast love to be our strength and fortress. Notice number one today. To do that, we pray for God's deliverance from evil. This is exactly what David does in this first section of request, 1 through 5, marked by that word Selah at the end of verse 5. David asks for deliverance. Deliver me from my enemies, he says in verse 1. Defend me. The, The root of that word defend is to fortress him. He's almost asking God to fortress me, God, or lift me up to a high tower. Defend me. Deliver me from the workers of iniquity and save me from bloodthirsty men. Four words there that all describe deliverance. Deliver, defend, deliver, save. These men who are after him are bloodthirsty. They're workers of iniquity. Verse 3 is uh, another reminder of this evil. Look, they lie in wait for my life. The mighty gather against me. So David, it's it's almost like David is calling the reader to look with him. You could imagine David in his house, and Michael has just told him, David, you've got to understand, Saul has sent men, they're outside, they're waiting for the right time to come in and kill you. And you can imagine David in his home, we don't know exactly what his home was like or where it was, but for the sake of argument, we'll imagine a door, probably had a door or maybe a window, and so uh, whether he had curtains or not, I don't know. But he maybe pulled something to the side or kind of peeked around the corner and looked out into the night darkness, looking for you know, the whites of their eyes, as it were, as these men are hiding uh, nearby, waiting to come and kill. And it's almost like he says to the reader, Look! Look with me! They're out there. In verse 3, they lie in wait for my life. He's calling to God to come and help him. David expresses his own innocence here. He he says in the end of verse 3 and and in verse 4, this is not for my transgressions. I've not done anything wrong. Remember, why is Saul trying to kill David? Because he sees David as a threat. God has given the throne to David. He's anointed David to be king over Israel. and David's not trying to kill Saul. But Saul's accusing him of that, of, of treason and of treachery, and is trying to put him down. So, so David's innocent here of any sin against Saul, and yet Saul's trying to put him to death. And so at the end of verse four and in verse five, David calls upon God to awake and help. Behold, see what's going on. The God of Israel he calls to come and punish not just the evildoers, but all the nations. The repetition of the word awake does not imply that God is asleep. I think it's just connected to the fact that this is happening at nights, when most everyone else is asleep. But he's calling on God, who is awake, to do something about this trouble. God, come to help me. When all else are asleep, you are awake. Come and help me in my time of need. Interesting here, David expands the request for punishment beyond just these men hiding to take his life. He actually says in verse 5, they're awake to punish all nations. David's expanding this beyond just the evildoers that are seeking to take him down, and he's calling upon God to, to put down all who do evil, all who resist God. And this will come up later in the psalm. David wants God to display his sovereign rule over all things. It's not about Saul having the nation or David having the nation. David wants God to display his rule. And he even asks at the end of verse 5, do not be merciful to any wicked transgressors. This is a strong request from David. David asks God to crush his enemies. And though the mighty, as he says in verse 3, gather against David, David looks to God to be his strength. God is awake. And ready to help. The key is that even in the night, David looks to God. As I mentioned last week, Carrie and I were able to uh, take a trip recently to visit uh, four different national parks. We did a lot of hiking and exploring and got to see the beauty of God's creation. But as you're hiking around and, uh, and, you know, climbing and traversing various sorts of terrain, you realize that at times there is some danger even in the national parks. That, you know, depending on where you hike, there's risk of falling. And usually they put signs up and things like that or have different means on the path to sort of protect you and help you and so forth. But That is a known risk of walking and hiking in a national park. And so the United States has established a park ranger service to to help care for the, the parks themselves and help people. In fact, there's a whole division of the ranger service called the Search and Rescue Division. And their whole intent, their whole priority is to keep tabs on what's happening with the visitors to the park and to get out there and to help them in their time of need. And in our various hikes at national parks, maybe you've done this too, you've passed park rangers on their way to find somebody or to help somebody. In fact, we've even seen a team of park rangers helping somebody out of the Grand Canyon. They'd become dehydrated and were too weak to get out on their own. And so a team of park rangers were helping them out. So there's something reassuring about having this search and rescue team there available to come and help if any trouble comes. And so I, I was just curious about how this all works and how often they're called out and so forth. So I was reading uh, a little bit about the search and rescue team, and I read an interesting scenario that happened in uh, a national park—not one that we visited—but uh, it actually had to do with an airplane that was flying over, and they ran out of gas and had to do kind of a crash landing. And the way they landed, the the uh, the pilot and the passenger were trapped in the plane. In this desert wilderness of a national park. And they thought for sure they were dead. During the crash, all their safety gear and supplies had flown from the plane and nothing was in reach and they were trapped inside. They couldn't get out. Until finally, the pilot noticed that uh, the GPS radio had actually landed down by his leg, And he saw it there, and and he thought, well, I can reach the SOS button. And so he began pressing the SOS button, and sure enough, uh, the signal reached the local national park towers, and the search and rescue team was able to come out and uh, rescue these two individuals from their plane in the middle of nowhere uh, because that SOS button made it to the search and rescue team, right? Just... Made it Now, not every story in uh, a wilderness like that turns out that way. But in this case, that SOS button that he could just reach in his uh, trapped position there in the plain made the difference for them being saved and rescued from their position. This is almost what David is doing here in this psalm. He's trapped in his home. He's leaving his fortress, you know, we think of our homes as a little fortress. He's leaving his fortress out the window to try to escape these, these men who are trying to kill him. He's outnumbered and they're strong and he's on his own. And so in the night, he brings his SOS to God who is his strength and his love and his fortress. God who will protect him. So David prays to God for deliverance. Friends, we too can pray to our God for deliverance. No matter how strong the opposition looks, look to God who is stronger. He's stronger than your ornery neighbor. He's stronger than the supervisor at work whose life mission is to make yours uncomfortable. He's stronger than your health struggle. He's stronger than the person in authority in your life who's making things difficult. He's stronger than the president of the United States. He's stronger than any earthly ruler. He's stronger than all spiritual beings. He's stronger than Satan. Look to God, your strength for deliverance from evil. No one is stronger than God. And so we pray to Him. And so we go to Him for help. No matter how dark the night looks, remember that God is awake. He neither sleeps nor slumbers. Call upon Him to take action. He is alert. He is ready to help. See, prayer is our resource to talk with God in the midst of our fears, and yet so often we ignore the SOS button, we ignore our access to God, and we we seek other helps, we seek other solutions to our problem instead of first turning to God in prayer. Now, David here not only prays for deliverance, he actually prays for no mercy upon the evildoers. And while certainly we could pray that way, if God had not had mercy on me as an evildoer, I would have not existed long ago. And so we must pray that carefully. In this age of grace, God's desire is that sinners would come to repentance. At the same time, we can pray for safety from evil, but we pray for evil to end through repentance. And we pray for the return of Christ when He will come and set all things right. But prayer is our access to the God who delivers. Number two, as we come to this next section, David hopes in God's rescue. This is a section of confidence in God, but it begins with this refrain about the dogs that hunt him. And what you're going to see here as he talks about these dogs is they claim to have no accountability Who hears us? Who's going to hear us, David, when you scream? There's no one here to hear you. You see, they're they're confident that they can follow through on their evil. But David is confident in the Lord. David turns his trust to the Lord. He knows the Lord hears. He knows the Lord will help him. And so he hopes in God's rescue. So listen to verses six and seven again. Break, or excuse me. Uh, At the evening they return. They growl like a dog. They go all around the city. Indeed, they belch with their mouth. Swords are in their lips, for they say, "Who?" This is our description of the dogs. They come at night. They come when it's dark. And it's almost as if David can hear them growling. And maybe he can, from his home, even hear them talking amongst one another about their plan and when they should attack. And David says they go all around the city. He feels, he feels surrounded and overwhelmed by these men who have come to attack him. Verse 7 says, indeed, they belch with their mouth. And that can refer to a burp or a belch, but it literally is just to bubble up. And some think that it may even refer to dogs foaming at the mouth. They're so, they're so ravenous for David's blood. Either way, David goes on to describe that swords are in their lips. Their words are part of how they attack, because one of the things they say is, Who hears? And this is sort of like a threat. No one's going to stop us, David. No one's going to hear your screams. No one's coming to protect you and to stop us from what we're doing. That's what they mean by this statement. Who hears? There's no God to stop us from doing what we're about to do. That's what makes David's transition in verse 8 all the stronger. He says, But you, O Lord, shall laugh at them. Indeed, there is one who hears. There is one who's stronger. And not only is God stronger, in fact, their puny threats are laughable before the sovereign God. So he laughs. Ha! Yeah, who hears, you say. The mighty God hears. You have no strength against the mighty God, David is saying, in response to them. And so the Lord holds them in derision, but not just them. Again, He expands it to all nations. The idea here is that anyone who would oppose God is no match for His strength. David, in verse 9, expresses his own commitment To hope in the Lord. He says, I will wait for you, O you, his strength. So David's turning his perspective to God. And that word wait doesn't just mean like watching your clock and just wishing the rescue would come. It's it's hoping, it's expectance for God's rescue. He's confident that God will rescue him. And so David says, I'm not worried about what they're saying. I'm waiting for your rescue, God. I know you're coming. And so he trusts in the Lord. He says, God is my defense. There's that word for fortress again. God is my fortress. You also see the word strength there in verse 9. Those are two of our key words. The third one comes in verse 10. My God of mercy shall come to meet me. That's the word for hesed or steadfast love. David's God, full of steadfast love, his fortress, his high tower, his strength. That's the one to whom David looks to come and help him. And did you notice David knows that God will come to him. And isn't that a great description of God's rescue, God's salvation, God's mercy. He's the one who comes to us. David's on the run. Where can he go? But God will come to him and help him. God shall let me see my desire on my enemies. God will bring victory, and David has confidence in God. While these dogs ignore God and taunt David, David turns to God and hopes in God's strength, God's fortress, and God's steadfast love. He hopes in God's rescue. Maybe you've been in a scenario where you hoped to be rescued. I'll share a lighter example. Uh, I was not really in any danger at all, just uncomfortable. I remember in elementary school, uh, some of my friends really wanted to go camping, and uh, so my friend's dad and a few of other of our similar-aged friends decided this would be fun. We'll go, we'll go tent camping for a few nights, and, uh, and so we gathered up our gear and our tents and so on and so forth, and If any of you know anything about me or know much about me, I I don't love to go camping, um, especially if I'm close enough to be at my home. I might as well use the plumbing that God has provided and so on and so forth. Anyway, that's my philosophy about camping. But um, in this case, you know, I was young, I didn't realize all those things. And so they're like, yes, camping is going to be great. Come out for a few nights and. And enjoy it and so we went to a local park it wasn't that far away uh and so you know at first it was really fun right we're you know us elementary aged kids we're hiking around the woods finding sticks that we could put on the fire and burn and all this and so that was great fun and uh and then you know we got the fire going that was great fun we cooked our first meal on the fire that was great fun and uh, and then it got time for bedtime, right? And so we got the tents all set up and got the sleeping bags out and... And I found, you know, the softest kind of soft area we could find to sleep on, which wasn't soft at all. And so laid down to go to sleep, and, you know, I'm just terribly uncomfortable. And at first, I'm extremely hot, right, so I can't sleep. So, so the sleeping bag's way open, and I'm just, oh, this is awful, you know, I can't sleep, and so I can't fall asleep. And then, then I start to hear things outside of the tent, right? just rustling around and so forth, what is that, you know, and I actually see this shadow walk by the tent, oh, what is that, you know, bears, you know, and I grew up in uh, the Chicago area, so believe me, it wasn't bears, but, uh, you know, what, what is this, what could it be, you know, so then my eyes are wide open, you know, and I'm just listening for every bit of motion out there, and, so finally then, I pull the sleeping bag up over and, and, and fall asleep for a little bit, but then I'm freezing cold, I wake up again, and I'm uncomfortable, I can't, fall so, you know, I hardly sleep a wink, and this is day one, right? So you wake up the next day, and you're tired, and you're sweaty, and you feel a little bit gross, and everything smells like smoke, and so we go back out, and we cook more on the fire, and so on and on it goes, you've been camping before, right? It's great. So... Um, on and on this goes, and so day three, you know, and this is the day that it's going to be done and we're headed home. And I, I just remember, you know, our parents were supposed to meet us there at the campsite and pick us up and take us home or whatever. And I just remember, like, like longing for my parents' vehicle to pull up, you know. It was just like, I, I enjoyed my friends, it was great, but I couldn't wait to get home and clean up and to, you know, have a shower and to have food on a, fire, or on a stove, you know, not on a fire. And to actually be able to sleep at night in my bed. And it was like this, this big rescue when my parents pulled up. Like, oh, they're here. I can go home. You know, okay. Not typical, I understand. But that's where I was, okay? That's where I was. And so that car coming around the corner pulling up and it was time to be done with the camping experience was exciting to me. Rescue rescue. You're saying, what? That's not rescue. That's like the opposite of rescue, right? So we all have different opinions about camping, but maybe you can remember a time when you just were ready to be done with a situation, ready to get out of trouble. This is where David is as he's in his house, and these, these men growling like dogs, prowling in the dark, waiting to take his life, and David hopes in God's rescue. In fact, the word mercy really carries with it a sense of rescue. Our God is a God who delights to rescue, to step in and save us, to come to meet us in our time of need. And Romans 8 makes clear to us, we know this about our God because it's proved to us in the gospel. When he rescued evildoers, he sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, while we were yet sinners, he died for us. And so God sent His Son to die in our place, to rescue us. He came to us when we were dead in our trespasses and sins; could not take a step toward Him. And yet He moved towards us. This is what He's like. And so we understand that because He's proved His love through the gospel, we know that no matter what we face, no matter what kind of evil seems to be upon us, we know that it it is not stronger than our God. It is not higher than His fortress. It is not greater than His steadfast love. And so whatever bit of that touches us is only what a loving God is using to grow and help and do eternal good for us. And so we hope in His rescue. He's a rescuing God. David had confidence in God's promise, and we too can have confidence in God's promises shown to us in the gospel, sending his son to die for us and rise again. We hope in His rescue. No matter what the enemy says, no matter how we're taunted, we keep looking to God's character and promises. In fact, Jesus prays this way in John 17, 15, a passage we studied not that long ago. He prays for His followers, and He's talking to the Father, and He says this, I do not pray that you, Father, should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. So God has us here. Yes, even though this world is still full of evil, God has us here for a reason. And as Jesus goes on to pray in John 17, it's so that the world will know that Jesus is the Savior that God sent. So we're here for a purpose. And while we're here for that purpose, the Father keeps us from the evil one, period. Isn't that great? It's an encouraging promise. Satan cannot harm us. God does not remove us from the earth until our purpose is finished. And even when we do die and pass from this earth, our lives continue forevermore because we've been rescued by God, all who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. And so we come to the third section of Uh, Our psalm here today, in verses 11 through 13, David returns to a section of request from God. He asks God to display His sovereign rule. And this section of request, just like the first one in 1 through 5, ends with the word Selah there in verse 13. And then in verse 14, he talks about the dogs again. So in 11 through 13, he's asking the Lord to do something interesting. He actually says, do not slay them lest my people forget. So God first, or excuse me, David first wants God to scatter his enemy. He doesn't want them to just disappear altogether because he wants Israel to remember what God has done. And so David prays that God would not slay them, but instead scatter them and bring them down. Make them powerless and there he calls God his shield in verse 11. He speaks more about their sin in verse 12, their sin with their mouth and their lips. They have pride, they're cursing and lying. And so in verse 13, ultimately David asked God to consume them in wrath. Their actions, their words, their pride, their so on and so forth, they deserve the wrath of God. And David asks God to do what is right but all of this leads to the end of verse 13, where we learn what, David, what it is that David really wants. He says that, that, let them know that God rules in Jacob to the ends of the earth. David wants these evildoers and the reader as well to know that God is the sovereign ruler in all the earth. Not just in Israel, not just in Jacob, as he calls Israel there, but in all the earth, David wants God to display his sovereign rule. A few months ago, I told you about an experience Carrie and I had at a restaurant. We were eating, and uh, out towards the front of the restaurant, a fight began to break out between a few of the uh, the people that were waiting for a table there at the restaurant, And one of them had pepper spray, and so everyone in the restaurant starts coughing and all this, and they're throwing dishes and fighting and swinging arms and all that. I mean, it was just a huge mess. And I remember sitting at my table sort of watching that and, like, wondering what in the world I should do. Uh, The restaurant manager and a few workers came out to try to stop it, and, uh, you know, they said, hey, we've called the police, they're coming, and so forth. And so I remember sitting at the table thinking, like, all right, police, any time now. Now's the time we can have you come in the door and just kind of put this thing down, and sure enough, uh, it was surprisingly fast. They walked through uh, the entryway there and began to break up the fight. Uh, it was nice to have someone with authority and with power to walk into the room to be able to actually put down what was going on and to stop what was happening, to stop the restaurant fight. Now, police officers are not sovereign. They don't rule over everything, but they have a degree of authority to enforce the laws and to stop evil. And in fact, Romans 13 says that authority is from God, It's where they get that authority. And so I was thankful in that moment for their authority, their, their little rule in that restaurant to put down what was going on and to bring calm and peace again. It's a small and tiny example, reminder of the sovereign rule of our God who rules over all things and it's good for us to ask God, to pray for God, to display His sovereign rule. People need to know that they're accountable to God. Sometimes it is through our suffering that God gives us the opportunity to give God glory, to show the world that there is a God in heaven and that they should glorify Him. And in fact, the kingdoms of this world, the United States included, need to know that God alone rules. All nations, all kingdoms fall before His dominion. Only His kingdom rules forever. That's why God's people do not laud or worship any nation. We worship God and His kingdom alone. He rules to the ends of the earth. And so we ought to pray for His sovereign rule to be put on display that all people would know and glorify the God We often pray for comfort and for the ease of suffering, and that's not wrong, but to include in our prayers that request that God would put on display His sovereign rule. Like Jesus prayed, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so we come then to the final section. We recognize our refrains again. He has the little refrain about the dogs. You see it there in verses 14 and 15. And then we have the refrain about God, His strength, His fortress, and His steadfast love. So there's some slight differences here that I'll just point out for you. David here has decided to sing, and so that's our fourth point today, that in order to look to the God of steadfast love, we sing praise to God for His loving protection. You see that in verse 16. David says, "I will sing of your power. I will sing aloud." So David is ready to praise the God. He says, praise God. He says it again in verse 17. But notice the contrast with the dogs in verses 14 and 15. This time, rather than saying, who hears and threatening David that way, this time the dogs are not satisfied. So verse 14 is almost exactly the same as verse 6. And then in verse 15, it says, They wander up and down for food. They howl as if they are not satisfied. So they're discontent. They're moaning and groaning. They just want to commit more and more evil. And even with the evil they commit, they're not satisfied. So they're, they're discontent. They just have this bloodlust, so to speak, to keep committing acts of evil, and none of it satisfies what they want. David chooses instead to be content and to be thankful and to praise God. He's not unsatisfied. Instead, he's overflowing in praise. Three times he talks about singing and shouting to God. I will sing of your power, God's strength. I will sing of your mercy. That's again his steadfast love. And he references the morning, which could mean that every day he's singing of God's mercy. I think in this case, it refers to the end of the night season. God's rescue has come. It's the morning. And so he sings about God's steadfast love. And finally, he sings that God has been his Defense and refuge. There's again that word for fortress, his high tower. And he ends in verse 17 with the same refrain he says in verses 9 and 10. To you, O my strength, I will sing praises, for God is my fortress, my defense, my God of mercy. David sings and praises God for his help and protection. There are many examples of this in Scripture. We could look back to the people of Israel when they come through the Red Sea. you Remember that event? Uh, they're trapped, and the Egyptians are at their back, and the Red Sea is on the other side, and they're, they're, they're not sure where in the world they can go. And God, through Moses, provides a path across the Red Sea, parting the waters. And so the Israelites cross to dry land. And then the Egyptians begin following them, and so they cry out to God again. And through Moses, God causes the water to come crashing on in on the Egyptians. And see, do you know what Moses does right after that event in Exodus 15? He sings to God. He writes a song of praise for the Israelites to praise to God. It's a very unique song. In fact, it starts this way. Moses says, I will sing unto the Lord, for He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider He has thrown into the sea a song written just for the occasion of God's provision there at the Red Sea. It is good for us to sing of God's loving protection, to praise Him for the way He has helped us and rescued us in the past, to pray with confidence about how He has helped us and rescued us and will rescue us in the future. We praise God for His strength, for His love, and for His protection. We praise God because of our salvation. We did that together this morning. Singing to the Lord as as the gathered people of God is so crucial. It's part of how we praise Him for what He's done. And so we sing songs like His Mercy is More, which praises God's steadfast love that, Though my sins were many, God came to me. And offered me salvation through His Son. Drew me to faith in Jesus Christ. Gave me new life by His Spirit. See, we sing these songs to praise His rescue. And as that continues through our lives, we continue to worship and sing and praise Him. This is how we look to the God of steadfast love to be our strength and our fortress. See, the beauty about this psalm is that there's nothing here we have to do in order to make God our refuge, our fortress, our strength, and our steadfast love. These aren't things that's like, well, God will protect you if you pray to Him. Well, God will be your refuge if you hope in Him. No, no, no. Psalm 59 just reminds us what God is like. He's doing these things because He is strength. He is fortress. He is steadfast love. So friend, if you're right with God by faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ as payment for your sins, then God is these things for you today. Whether or not you respond this way, but these are ways we can battle our fear, resist temptation to sin, and look to God as our strength and fortress and steadfast love in our times of fear when we are stalked by the evil of this world. Keep turning to God. He is these things. He's proved His love through His Son, Jesus Christ. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank You for Your protection, Your care. We are not worthy of your steadfast love. And I am so thankful that there's nothing we can do to earn your care or your kindness. There's nothing we can do to jeopardize your protection and your love. You are strength. You are a fortress. You are our steadfast love. And so we praise you for these things through Jesus. I pray for my brothers and sisters here today that we who have trusted in Christ would keep trusting in Christ. To know that no matter what evil we face, no matter what difficulty or pain or suffering you may have allowed in our lives, Lord, help us to keep looking to you and to find you our refuge and strength and fortress. Help us to trust in you in our time of need, no matter what goes on in the world around us. And may we pray with confidence in your rescue that the world may see your sovereign rule. We thank you and we praise you.